2 Corinthians. Now, the reason I feel like it's necessary for us to take a moment and do an overview of the book is because this is a very personal book. It's a very personal book to the Apostle Paul. And so we can look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul is writing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by his own will, but he says, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Paul is writing this letter, and Timothy, his son in the faith, is there with him. To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who were in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that he's writing this letter to the church of God that is at Corinth and to the saints that are in Achaia. So let's see if y'all can put that map up. Maybe the first map. So over here, if you'll look, everybody knows, I I try to put up when we do this, a picture of Mediterranean Sea. Everybody recognizes Italy on the map, right? We all remember that from fifth grade geography because Italy looks like a boot. Looks like a lady's boot, doesn't it? So we've got the the, the boot there. And then uh, next to that, Next to the boot, that, that peninsula that's next to it, to your right, that's Achaia. That's modern-day Greece. So that's Greece. And then, do you notice at the bottom of that peninsula, there's a, it looks like an island. It's not really an island. There's a small isthmus there. But uh, that's Peloponnesus, and that's where Corinth is. So we can show the next map. Okay, so that's zoomed in on that southern part of what is modern-day Greece, the Peloponnesus. And you can see the little red dot there from Google Maps. You can see that's Corinth right there. There's a narrow strip of land that separates that Peloponnesus from the main landmass of Achaia. And uh, that, that is four miles across at its most narrow point. And they, they tried during Paul's lifetime to dig a canal because, uh, go back to that first map. I'm not really throwing them for a loop here. But you see, if you can sail, if you can find a way to avoid going out into the Mediterranean Sea where the waters would be rough, you could stay up there in all those safe harbors. So the canal was very important. Now, they didn't have a canal until 1893. So what would happen is you would park your boat there on the western or eastern side of the isthmus and then they would pick your boat up and they would roll it four miles or they would transport all the goods four miles to another boat that would take it on because that's how dangerous the shipping routes were. Can you show the picture of the canal? Now this canal, they dug it in 1893 over that trade route. Let's see. Go to the next one. That's what it looks like. Isn't that something? They didn't use locks. They just decided to go right through the mountains. And I think there's one more. Yeah, that's them tugging a, you can see how small it is, uh, how, how large the boat, the ships have gotten. So that's kind of, uh, that was kind of, that, that little narrow strip of land was very important. You can take those off there. That was very important to the economy of, of Corinth. Now, Corinth had been a Greek city-state. So Corinth had a long history. It was there for many, many hundreds and hundreds of years as a city-state of Greece. 
And so we know that the, the Grecian Empire arose out of uh, the Macedonian Kingdom with Alexander the Great having conquered uh, much of the world. But when the Roman Empire took over from the Greeks, uh, they were, the, the Roman Empire was emerging and there were several strong city-states in Greece and Rome wanted to take as many of those city-states and as much territory as Rome could take, but the city-states that remained in the area of Greece there in Achaia, they formed a league to fight the Romans. And so the Romans came in, and Corinth was one of those cities that was rebelling against Rome. And so the Romans came in, and they fought those city-states, and the Romans won, and they actually, so you have two Corinths. In 44, uh, well, uh, one, let's see, 146, so 146 years before Jesus was born, uh, the Romans demolished that city. They, they took it to the ground. And now there might have been a few people living there in that area, but for the most part, that was an abandoned city. So what we would call classic Greece, Grecian Corinth was totally demolished in 146 BC. Well, then one of the last things that Julius Caesar did after Corinth had sat there empty for a hundred years, one of the last things he did before he was assassinated is he said, let's rebuild Corinth. So in 44 BC, Corinth was rebuilt. So we, think, we tend to think of Corinth as a very old city because it existed for a long time and it was a very depraved city and worshipped those Grecian gods. And it's not like it got a whole lot better whenever the Romans rebuilt it, but it was a new city. So when Paul started the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he was going to a very different kind of place. Now, whenever scholars try to describe what was Corinth like, you know, in the, in the middle of the first century, they compare it to Texas during the oil boom. They compare it to San Francisco in the days of the Wild West. It was new. It was growing exponentially. The money was new, and there was great wealth in the city of Corinth. And it was the place where people would go. It was a place that if you were just a soldier, you, you'd, you'd done a great job serving as a soldier in the Roman army, but if you went back to Rome, you're, there's going to be a hierarchy, there's going to be a class system. They're, they're going to say, yeah, you're a wealthy soldier, or a wealthy retired soldier, but you're not from one of the families that has pedigree, so you don't matter in Rome. Well, you could go to Corinth, and you mattered. So you see how Corinth was? It was a lot different. Rome was overpopulated. And whenever they would kick people out of Rome, like they kicked Priscilla and Aquila out, people would go to Corinth. And very quickly, Corinth uh, became a town with a popular city with a population of around 80,000 people. And Corinth became the, the third most important, behind Ephesus, the third most important city in the Roman Empire. And we, I showed you why. The major trade route between the east and the west ran right through there if you wanted to have safe passage on your ship. It was a very diverse city. People would come there looking for opportunity. We said, gone to Texas. They would have said, gone to Corinth. As Americans, if there's any city in the Roman Empire that we would probably really relate with, uh, the scholars say we would really understand the Corinthian mindset as Americans. They love, you know, here's one reason. They loved sports and they loved entertainment. They had a, a games there. You know, we think of the ancient games. What's the most popular ancient games that comes to mind? 
the Olympic Games. But they had a game, the ga- their games were the second most important games in the Roman Empire. They were called the Isthmian Games. They had a theater there in their city that held 18,000 people. And then a concert hall that held uh, 3,000. Just to give you, uh, we would consider a large indoor arena uh, that would hold maybe about 20,000 people. So that if you can imagine, that's the t- type of population you were dealing with. There are so many parallels with Corinth and Western United States that there's one pastor, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there's one pastor that when he, when he was preaching through First and Second Corinthians, he would joke with his congregation and say, all right, let's open our Bibles back up to First and Second Californians, because that's how much we would probably relate with these people. So when we read 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, when we read these letters to the Corinthians, understand there's a lot of similarities there. And probably many of the ways that Paul had to speak to them, he would have to speak in very similar ways to us. Paul had a hard time with this church in Corinth. So Paul planted this church. He was the founder of this church. And he had a hard, hard time with this church. He had a hard time... Um, with these Corinthians. And I'm sure that if we were to show up at the church, at First Baptist Church of Corinth, we would find very many things to love about them. But we would also find very many things that might be problematic. And I think it's similar when we come to our churches here in America. There are many wonderful things that our churches do. Churches aren't all good or all bad. Churches can be doing wonderful things and also have some blind spots, also have some things where they need to change and grow and mature. So we can think of this letter. Yes, it's written to, the, to a church that existed 2,000 years ago. But as we read the letter, we can find many things that would apply to us even into our day. And that's how we want to read the Bible, isn't it? We want to look, who was this written to originally, and what did it mean to them? Because that's what it means, right? But then what we can do is take the meaning of it and we can look at our context. We can think about looking at it through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. And then we can say, okay, what can we learn from the meaning here? What can, how can we take what it meant to them and then consider the cross and then think about ourselves and say, what lessons can we learn from these people? How is God's word speaking to us? Because if, if there's similar circumstances that we have with the Corinthians, we're probably going to find a lot of application to our church where the God's Word can speak to us and say, the meaning of it is this, but the way it's going to apply to you and to me is going to be something that we're going to be looking for to see how can we learn from this church. So I know I had you look at 2 Corinthians. We looked at the first two verses there. But now let's turn back over uh, to Acts chapter 18. So we'll look at Acts chapter 18, and we'll look at how this church came to be. Acts chapter 18. When we look at Acts chapter 18, we realize that Paul is leaving Athens. Uh, Paul had had an interesting ministry in Athens. Uh, the, The Athenians had really, not very many of them had listened to him. And he would go to the marketplace and there was a place called the Areopagus where Paul would, would on, on, a, on a mountain called Mars Hill, and people would come there and they would just, they just liked showing up, hearing new things. 
And Paul went and told them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They said, what is this babbler talking about? But the Bible says that some people said, we want to hear you more, and that some people who were appointed to believe, believed. So Paul had a short ministry there in Athens, and then it says that he went by himself. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, leaving behind some of his companions there in Macedonia. He goes by himself to Corinth, and there in verse 2 we see he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Prisca or Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now that's possibly due to the overpopulation problems that they were finding certain people that they wanted to get out of the city go somewhere else. So remember, just like people I'm going to Texas, Priscilla and Aquila said, we're going to Corinth. Paul went to see this Jewish couple because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we have Paul. He goes to the city, which I've shown you there on the map. He finds this couple that is engaged in the same kind of business that he was. So Paul, for a living, made tents. And so, he was a, so the way he provided for himself was through his tent-making ministry. He had something in common uh, with this Priscilla and Aquila, who wound up becoming very influential believers. And on Saturdays, he would go to the synagogue, and he would reason there. He would talk to them, and he would tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Silas and Timothy, who had been in Macedonia, came uh, to Corinth, and it says, when they came, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul, and they became abusive, it says to him, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, so imagine a, a dusty uh, outfit, and he's shaking out his clothes, say, I'm shaking the dust off. I'm, I'm shaking you off of me. But Paul realized they're being abusive. They're not listening. They're not going to hear what I'm saying. So he shakes off his clothes at the Jews. And he says, your blood be on your own heads. I've come and I've warned you. I've come. This is what preachers do, isn't it? I'm, my job is not to make you happy. My job is to tell you the truth. And then your job is to determine, is he telling the truth? And if I'm telling the truth and, and you believe it, Amen. And amen for me. If I'm not telling the truth, woe is me. But if I'm telling the truth and you don't believe it and you reject it, then your blood is on your own heads because you had the opportunity to receive Christ or to reject Christ and you rejected him. Who can you blame? No one but yourself at the judgment. He says, I'm innocent of your blood. I've done my job telling you the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7 says, Paul left the synagogue. The synagogue was, a, was like the church where uh, the church building or the house where Jews met. Okay, so a synagogue would be like a Jewish church. So whenever the temple worship ceased, when the temple was destroyed, uh, or when the temple uh, uh, sacrifices ceased to be made, uh, and whenever they couldn't make it to, to uh the temple because it was too far away. If they had, I, I can't remember how many you had to have to make a synagogue. It may, you remember, Chris, that you have to have 10 men? It's some number like if you had 10 men in a city that were Jewish, 
you could found a synagogue. And so in all these cities, this is where the Jews would gather to read the Bible and to hear preaching and teaching. So Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and there are, there's a, Crispus and I think Stephen are both synagogue leaders here. Uh, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So now we have the, the starting of the church there, which is going to include Jews and Greeks. Uh, yes, or Jews and Gentiles. And then look, it says in verse 9, this is God preparing Paul for some hardship that's about to come his way. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. God is preparing Paul because he's about to walk through a battle. I was thinking about this, and I don't know if it was a sermon I heard or something I was doing for school, but it's interesting. You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, I don't want to go through anything hard. But that's not the way life's going to be, is it? We know that we're going to, we're going to face difficulty. There are going to be very many hard things that come into our life, especially as a believer. But notice, God didn't say, hey, Paul, there's some people that are going to be really mean to you. I'm looking for you a way out of it. He said, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent, I am with you, no one's going to attack you and harm you. So what is, what is the Lord enabling Paul to do? What does he enable us to do? I think what he does is he says, I'm going to prepare you to be able to walk straight through what you need to walk through. And I'm going to be with you, I'm going to prepare you for that. I'm going to be protecting you during that time so that as Christians, we can walk through the battle because the Lord is our shield. And so it says Paul stayed there in Corinth. And it's interesting that he stayed there for a good long time. Now, we know he was in Ephesus uh, for three years, but in, in this case, he stayed here for a year and a half. Now, for a man that's on a missionary journey to stay somewhere for a year and a half is significant, but he stayed there. God was moving. And he taught them, it's a very important city, and God uh, says he was teaching them the word of God. And then in verse 12, we have the trouble. It says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and they actually found evidence of this guy existing. Uh, I don't know why that surprises us, but it's always interesting to find it. So there's an inscription at a place called Delphi, where some public improvements were made, and they give... Uh, praise or credit to Gallio, and it mentions there the proconsul Gallio, and that was 52, uh, 52 AD or CE. And so we know that this is about the time frame when this was happening would be 52 because they found that, um, that inscription there. So it says, while Gallio was the proconsul, he was ruling in that area, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack. So Paul's having success in the ministry. He's left the synagogue. He's moving out to, to work with the Gentiles. And the Jews get together, and it says there they make a united attack on Paul, and they brought him to the place of judgment. They brought him before Gallio, and they said, this man 
is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, they're not appealing to their law. They're appealing to Roman law. He's saying Jesus is Lord, and in that time, who was Lord? Caesar. You weren't supposed to give any, more, any worship to anyone that you would give. Now, you could worship your gods as long as Caesar was number one. But Paul was saying Jesus is number one. The Lord is preeminent over all things. I said he's, he's persuading people to worship God in contrary ways. This is something people would do when they would bring charges against Paul, which is interesting, is Jews would, would appeal to pagan uh, laws, even though they didn't really believe them. But I guess, hey, whatever works, right? We've got this guy. He's a troubler. We need to get him out of here. And so just as Paul was about to speak, just as Paul was about to uh, defend himself, Gallio said, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so he, he was considering Paul to be a Jew, and he was looking at this as an internal dispute. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, which is the other synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So he considered this to be an internal squabble. It didn't, there was no serious crime. Uh, yes, you could probably show up and say this guy is, is promoting the worship of some other god. That might have flown a little better uh, in some other city, but Corinth was the Wild West, remember? He didn't want to mess with it. Uh, the Jews were largely allowed to rule themselves. Uh, there, if there was no problem and there was peace, and all this guy's doing is just talking to people and they're singing songs and doing what Christians did, he had no problem with it. And he didn't want to mess with it. And so what did they do? He drove them off and the crowd turned on one of the new Christians and they beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. And Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So that's when he left. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of a vow he had taken. So that's how the church began, uh, there with Paul ministering to the Corinthians. It says he was there for three years, and he wrote them a letter. So uh, Paul's in Ephesus. He kind of has a headquarters there in Ephesus for a while. And he, after the church uh, in uh, Corinth is founded, Paul writes them a letter. Now we know this because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, he mentions that he wrote them a letter. And after he, we call this the lost letter. So there's really, we say 1 and 2 Corinthians, but really there's there were four, four letters that we know of that were written to the Corinthians, and there might have been more than that. We only have two that are preserved and we understand to be inspired. So they wrote, after, after Paul writes the first letter, they write him back, the lost letter, they write him back with a bunch of questions. And so in response to all of their questions that they had for Paul, he writes them 1 Corinthians. Now we have that in our Bible. Now, if you've been here for a while, uh, on July 27th of 2014, I began preaching through 1 Corinthians, and it took us a long time to get through it because it's such a long letter. So 1 Corinthians is written. Then after he writes 1 Corinthians, and he, he was pretty rough on them in 1 Corinthians. They had a, a lot of trouble. Uh, and he was trying to tell them, hey, this is what I've heard is going on. 
this sounds pretty bad. And then, he, and then because of how bad the situation was in the church, he sent Timothy to them. And Timothy got there and found the church was, was just an absolute mess. Paul had written them this letter. Paul was trying to straighten out what was going on. But they were not listening to um, Paul at all. Timothy goes down there. The church is in a total mess. And so in uh, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions that he came to them and made a painful visit. So Paul came down there, and, it, and things did not go well. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? We would think that if we're going to uh, study church history, if we're going to study the ministry of the greatest apostle, if you're going to study the ministry of the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, don't you think his ministry would just sound so incredible? I mean, it's not that it does sound incredible, but you would think there wouldn't be any problems. You would think if Paul showed up, people would listen. But Paul showed up at this church, and they rejected him. They were steeped in their sin. They didn't want to pay attention to what Paul had to say. Even though he was their spiritual father, even though they would not know the gospel if it had not been for Paul, when he got there, they were cold, and they were hard towards him. And they were questioning him. Are you really an apostle? If you're really an apostle, and if God really loves you so much, why are you suffering so much? Why is it that everywhere you go, you're beaten, stoned, bad-mouthed? If God's really on your side, why is all this terrible stuff happening to you? You know, we like to hear Apollos preach. There's no one that can preach like Apollos. But Paul, you're not very eloquent. We don't like the way you look. You know, when you show up here, you're a little man. And you're not very impressive. Boy, you sure write like you're impressive. You write strong, but you can't back it up when you're here in person. And by the way, you keep saying you're going to come see us. How come you never come see us? Why are you always changing your travel plans? And why don't you have a letter from the church in Jerusalem that says you're legitimate? And what about all this money you say you're collecting for the saints in Jerusalem? Are you really collecting that money for them? Are you collecting it for yourself? These issues all show up in these letters where Paul's having to defend himself because they're laying all these charges against him. This was the disagreement that they had with Paul. They didn't like the way he preached. They didn't like what he was preaching. There had been false teachers who had come in and they were saying, don't listen to this guy. He's a loser. Here's the way we need to live out the Christian life. He says in chapter 11 that they were believing a different gospel than the one that he had taught them in the very beginning. So after that painful visit, Paul decides he's not going to go back. He tells them in 2 Corinthians that he felt that if he went back to see them after the painful visit, it would only make things worse. So he decided to write a letter. Now, we don't have the letter that he wrote. He talks about the letter that he wrote. And this letter is called the tearful letter or the lamentable letter. Because even in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he was conflicted. He says, part of me wishes I hadn't written it. And then part of me is glad that I wrote it because it had a good effect on the church. So after he writes the tearful letter where he, 
He apparently poured his heart out to them. And we can see why, this letter, why, why these letters are so personal because that's how church is, right? I mean, church is about relationships. Church is about people. It's interesting to hear people talk about, well, they say, your church, your church, the church, the church, this. And I always think, you're thinking of the church like it's a business or, or some other kind of institution rather than like an organism made up of all these actual people that are the church. I mean, churches are complex, aren't they? Uh, we're, we're, we all come here with different backgrounds and different uh, 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 go, uh, uh, vocations and different interests and all these different things. And, and yet, somehow, God brings us all together in the church. And when he brings all of us together, I don't know how many, Dale, how many people are sitting in here right now? About, there's about 220 people sitting in here right now. Okay, that should be higher. But it uh, needs to be more than that tonight. No, let's... <laughs> So there's 220 people in here, and guess out of all those 220, how many sinners there are? There's 220. <laughs> so when you bring that many people together to, to form a body, and everybody's bringing all these awesome gifts and all these awesome talents that God has given them, they're also bringing their sin into the relationship. And pretty soon, it's easy for things like selfishness and pettiness and unhappiness and jealousy. There's a lot of things that, that we have to deal with in relationships. That's why we're constantly having to tend to our relationships and to bring our relationships under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I've been thinking a lot about this. I, I read a book while we were at children's camp. So it was a book about the fruit of the Spirit and, uh, from, from Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit. We think like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We think of these as being the fruits. But he doesn't say fruits. What does he say? Fruit singular. So you might say, oh, I'm a very joyful person, but I'm not a very patient person. Well, that's not how the fruit of the Spirit works. When he's working on your joy, he's working on your patience, he's working on all of them or he's not working. And so when we come into our relationships, that's how we should approach our relationships. In my relationship with Melissa, am I demonstrating, can she look on my branches and can she see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is that there? Is that being demonstrated in all of our relationships? Or when I come to you, is it other kind of fruit? that's being displayed. And here we see, uh, in an, we see, I think when we read through 2 Corinthians, here's, I've read it several times through. I've looked at it in different translations to try to say, what is the, what is the theme of this letter? What, what, what is going on here? And it's interesting that in a lot of Paul's letters, there's a lot of doctrine. This letter has some doctrine in it. But when I read through this letter, I thought, this letter is just, it's really about church. It's really about how we come together as believers in a local place. Wouldn't it be easy just to go to church online? Have y'all seen some of these online churches? You know, uh, First Dallas does a big, they call it iCampus, and where you're, you're uh, you just, they, they invite you to just come watch church online. You can sit in your living room, and you can watch and listen to, you can listen and watch the beautiful choir of First Baptist Dallas, and they are Amazing, aren't they? We see videos of them on YouTube and Facebook. And we, oh, man, that is amazing music. And then uh, Pastor Robert Jeffress gets up, 
and he, and he preaches, and he gives a fantastic message every week, and, and it all looks so beautiful, high-definition cameras. And you know what's so great about that, if you go to church that way? You don't ever have to talk to anybody you don't like. <laughs> you don't ever have to talk to anybody that's different than you. You don't have to talk to somebody that might be older than you or younger than you. At the First Baptist Church online, you don't have to ever work in the nursery. I mean, it's a great deal, right? But that's not how church is supposed to work, is it? Church is gritty. Church is messy. Because if you don't ever run across other iron, you never get sharpened. And so we come here, and like it says in, when we do the new member class, for those of you that have taken the new member class, one thing that I emphasize is it tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of the church, it says there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, the purpose of the church is to display the wisdom of God to the authorities in heaven. So in other words, when we gather here today, there are angels looking down. And they're saying, Father, this is amazing. It's amazing that you brought all those people there, all those sinners together, and they have a unified mind. They love Jesus. They love each other. They love their neighbor, and they love you. You've outdone yourself. Now, these are angels, right? The angels saw the creation of the universe. The angels saw God part the Red Sea. The angels were looking down and singing the night that little baby Jesus was born. But somehow when the church gathers, he says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, when the church gathers and the angels look at it, it displays the wisdom of God. They glorify God for his wisdom in the church. But that doesn't happen if we are distant from it and we don't ever plug in and get involved. So there's a messiness to church. The fact that Paul's having all these problems with these people. It tells us that if the Apostle Paul is going to have all these relationship difficulties, then we're probably also going to have relationship difficulties. And what do most people do when they encounter those relationship difficulties? You may encounter me on a day where I want the fruits of the Spirit to be evident in my life. But there might be some bad fruit on the branches when you encounter me someday, and you're going to walk away saying, that guy's a pastor? I mean, I say that to myself all the time. You are a pastor. You need to stop thinking this way. You need to stop acting this way. And, and I'll say, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm ashamed of that. You know, and if you come to me and you say, hey, Chad, I know you weren't trying to upset me the other day, but when I saw you and you just walked right by me and you totally ignored me like you had horse blinders on, it really hurt my feelings. And you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, you ought to mind your own business. Is that what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Of course, I did not mean to hurt your feelings. How can I make it right? Well, or I'll say this, because this is a great thing I've learned to say too. When I've upset somebody, I say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because I, I upset people all the time, right? And so I ask them, will you please forgive me for what I've done? That's how we work. And that's why we don't just walk away. We don't just flee. When we, we don't say, well, I can't believe we had a problem in the church. If we went to a church where there was no problems like internet church, that should give us a, a red flag. Hey, something's wrong here. Church isn't supposed to be this easy. If the Apostle Paul had trouble, then we're going to have trouble. But it's through all the trouble 
and the way that we love each other through all the trouble and all the disagreements and all the different things that, that we encounter as we walk through this world, that the angels look at it and they say, this is amazing. This is amazing. So he sends Titus to them after he's written that letter. And Titus shows up, and apparently when they received that tearful letter that Paul had written to them, where he bore his heart to them, after that painful visit, and who knows what he said in the letter, most of the church said, y'all know what? Paul's right. And they had repented. And they had done what Paul had said to do to get their church straightened out. Now, there's still some people that disagree with Paul. There's still a minority there that has not sided with Paul and come back to their spiritual father. But whenever Titus comes back and gives Paul the news, things are going well. This church is becoming healthy. He writes them the letter we're going to read now, 2 Corinthians. And as we write this letter, as I've been looking for the theme of the letter, it, 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 it's amazing how the fruit of the Spirit is demonstrated in the way Paul writes this letter to people who have been really rotten to it. But they seem to have repented. And then in the letter, he continues to reach out to those who are opposed to him. We can break the letter down into three parts. The first part, chapters one through seven, Paul gives an update on his work. He talks about his great suffering and his ministry. In chapters eight and nine, Paul addresses the collection for the church in Jerusalem. Now, what had happened was Paul had gone and, and to the Corinthian church and told them, hey, all the Christians are starving back in Jerusalem, and we need to take up a collection for all, from all the churches, and we're going to take it to Jerusalem and give it to them. And the so Corinthians said, all right, and they made their pledges, and they apparently just promised to do so much for the Jerusalem church. And then Paul left and went to the other churches in Macedonia, and he said, hey, this is what the Corinthians are going to do. Can y'all believe it? What are y'all going to do? And they said, gosh, the Corinthians are going to do that. We're going to do all this. The problem is the Corinthians never paid their pledges. <laughs> so he had to talk to them in chapters 8 and 9 about following through on what they said they were going to do. It reminds me of my college. I went to Howard Bain, and the same thing happened there. They had a big donor. They went and secured this big pledge of a big gift from this donor. And... Uh, they went back and used that big pledge to get a bunch of other pledges, and uh, they decided, well, who is, who, who is that guy that made that, that big pledge? So, oh, his, his name's Howard Payne. I was like, we ought to name the college after him. So they named the school after Howard Payne, and they never got a dollar from him. <laughs> so that's an interesting fact about, about Howard Payne. So if you play it right, you might get a, get a legacy like that. And then in chapters 10 through 13, the letter shifts gears. And Paul begins really to speak to those that are still opposed to him there in Corinth as he defends his apostolic authority. So what are we hoping to learn over these next few months as we go through these 257 verses of this letter? Number one, this, this letter is about gospel ministry. Now who in this church is engaged in the gospel ministry? Yeah, Jody said this. It's all of us, isn't it? 
This letter is about soul care. Who is responsible for caring about the souls in this congregation? Right? Everybody. We're all responsible for gospel ministry. We're all responsible for the soul care of everyone here. And when we start our, our class this fall, our evening class, that's what we're going to talk about. How do we care as a church for one another's souls? How do we use the Bible to care for one another? We're going to learn that this letter is personal. It's about the personal way we minister Christ to one another in the church. What we can learn from this letter is how to love one another well. This letter is about weakness. This letter is about suffering. And is there a lot of weakness and suffering out there? There's a lot of weakness and suffering in all of our lives. But the, the wonderful part of this letter is it's not just about weakness and suffering. It's about mercy. And it's about the comfort of God. This letter is about the painful part of church life. The hurt that we bring into the church. The broken relationships. The offenses. It's about forgiveness and the messiness of working out relationships between sinners. But it's also about the hope that we have in Jesus. That even though we're sinners, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that allows us to keep going, to keep serving, to love people who don't love us, and to continue to rely on the fact that if God has called us to do this, then we need to do it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that's in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, and for us, it will be a letter in some ways that we'll consider aimed here at First Baptist only. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to learn that Paul could offer grace and peace to this church that had been so bad to him. Because Paul knew grace and peace. What will fall off the pages of this letter is love and encouragement from a man who had been deeply wronged. But you will notice that in this letter, even in the first two verses, that the apostle, even when he was discouraged, even when he was at the end of the line, writing yet another letter, and these letters were not cheap, the cost of writing a letter in those days would be about $2,500 of our money. And so Paul, whenever he's already written them thousands of dollars worth of letters, he writes another one. He doesn't quit. And that's because Paul had a secret. He called it the secret to his contentment. And that secret was that he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he had a calling to serve these people. And so as we close, I have two questions for you to consider as you leave here. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you say, yes, I have a, G a relationship with Jesus Christ, that means then there's a calling on your life. So what is the calling? What is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to do today? What is he calling you to do tomorrow? How is he calling you to love and to care for the people that he has put in your life? So I'm asking you two questions. Are you saved and are you serving? And if you're not, I have one question. Why not? Why not?